Amen. So there is a, there's this old proverb, right? What you see is what you get. And this is usually said as a sort of guarantee, you know, that you can trust your eyes, right? What you see is what you get. But I think most of us know that this is it's not, it's not always true, right? There's some, uh, there's some famous photos, for instance. You've probably seen this one of Abraham Lincoln, right? Classic famous photo. But it turns out this is a fake picture. They actually placed Lincoln's head on the body of John Calhoun, who had died some 10 years earlier. Uh, I, I had no idea. I just thought that was, you know, an original Abraham Lincoln. Here is a famous photo of, this is uh, Mussolini. And here he looks like this, you know, strong, powerful, capable leader. Now here's the real photo. Can you spot the difference? Can you see it there? It's real, it's real subtle. But in the real photo, in the original, um, there we go. Um, there's a horse handler holding on to the horse for him. And they edited that out to make him appear stronger. And this next one, you have the prime minister of Canada. He's charming Queen Elizabeth II. And then here is the original. Um, and then the original here. Yeah. So he actually had King George was there. And he cut him out of the picture. So it looks like he's entertaining the queen all on his own. And so, uh, so here's the real truth, right? What you see is not always what you get. And if you think that those you know, historical faked pictures are impressive, man, that's nothing compared to what people can do today, right? It really is incredible. You know, aside from like, changing filters and adding dog ears, there are a thousand different apps and programs you can use to tweak your pictures. You can have a thinner face, longer legs, more defined muscles, clearer skin, all of it at the touch of your finger. And what's so sneaky about this is, man, most of the time you cannot tell the difference. But every once in a while, every once in a while people slip up, and the edits that they have made shine through, and the results can be pretty entertaining. So this guy, for instance, can you spot the fake? Can you spot what's not real about this photo? Look at his hand. Look at the shadow for his hand. Ah, the iPhone doesn't have a shadow. Weird. That iPhone doesn't exist, right? <laughs> He's added it, I guess, to, to make himself seem more wealthy or something, you know? Um, here's one of, uh, yeah, yeah, right here you can see um, reflections can be a problem. If you look at her face in the picture and then her face in the reflection off the lockers, she has thinned out her face to make herself look different. Um, you can see this guy forgot about the reflections as well. Uh, so if you look at the reflection behind him, yeah, yeah, he's not, he's not lifting quite that much. Not quite that much. Um, now this guy, uh, you can tell that he, oh, oh, well, here we have Selena. Okay, sorry. All right, yeah, this is an interesting one. Even celebrities are subject to this, right? Um, because you see, like, this looks normal and stuff. Doesn't look like there's any edits. But, man, there's this slight place where the, the door frame just warps, right? Um, so she has done something to that picture, something to that picture to edit it. Um, I think this next guy is pretty funny. Oh, man, sorry. This next guy is pretty funny. Um, you can see uh, he lives a very exciting life, you know, constantly traveling until you realize that minks in Tel Aviv they have the exact same backyard fence. Weird. Weird, right? 
Um, this next one, here you have this influencer. She's showing off this glamorous breakfast she eats every morning, as well as like several packages of bacon. I don't know why those are there. Um, and, and it looks very, very impressive until you realize that breakfast is just an image that she downloaded off the internet and slapped on there, right? Gordon Ramsay, he is not that young, okay? Um, there's the real picture. This girl's foot faces backwards. Where did the rest of her horse go? Um, the impressions from this waffle do not match the number of indentations on the waffle maker itself, okay? Um, and finally, this poor girl's, her eyebrow, it, uh, it is floating on top of her hat. It's floating on top of her hat. What you see is not always what you get, Right? And while, while that's kind of funny, I think, um, there's a scary side to all of this. You know, once you realize all those pictures are fake, you start to wonder, man, what if they're all fake? Are any of the pictures I see that I compare myself to, that I feel jealous of maybe, are they real? I've got to show you, there's a video we're going to play here in just a second. It's a video of this fitness influencer. And she discovered this body editing app called Perfect Me. It does all the normal picture and video editing of changing how you look. But what's unique about it is that it can change how you look in real-time videos. So, you know, you can appear different on a live Zoom call, for example. So she tried it out, and and we're going to kind of watch her experience here in this video. see her reaction when she saw her face go back to normal? Here's what she said in the description of this video. She said, the more these apps are normalized, the more we encourage unrealistic beauty standards, and our effort to be perfect will never be realized. Worse still, our perception of others will be distorted and will continue to be dissatisfied with our appearance in real life. I felt awful. After seeing my face switch from being a Disney princess's back to normal in this video, I couldn't imagine what using an app like this regularly would do to my mental health. You know, she, she wonders, rightly so, how will this app affect people, right? How will it warp their view of themselves? And maybe you think about that too. Maybe you worry about it too. You know, if everything around you is, is faked, edited, photoshopped, nothing around you is real, what do you do? When you can't trust your own eyes, what you see is not always what you get. And this idea, this, it's nothing new, right? I mean, humanity has always struggled with the divide between what we can see and perceive and what is really there. I'm going to say that again. We have always struggled with the divide between what we can see and perceive and what is actually there. Turn, if, if you haven't already, to 1 Samuel chapter 1. That's, that's where we'll be this morning, chapter 1 and 2. And now, originally, First and Second Samuel, they were just one book, and it was titled, you might guess, Samuel. 
Yes. Um, and, and the book of Samuel, it chronicles Israel's first experience with kings. It chronicles Israel's kind of journey from a loose collection of tribes led by judges to a powerful nation united under a king. And it's genuinely an incredible story, probably my favorite narrative section of scripture. It has it all. It has villains and heroes, impossible odds, confrontations, tough choices, and the consequences that follow those choices. But there's this question that runs throughout the story of kings and battles, prophets, and moral crises. And that is, can you really trust what you can see about a person? Does outer success equate to inner character? Can you experience success for God without being in favor with God? And when things look really bad, is there any hope? Is what you see what you get? The book of Samuel, it doesn't start with David or, or King Saul or even Samuel himself. It starts with this woman named Hannah. There in verse 1 it says, There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zaphim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. That's a sentence right there. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This is the story of Hannah. And her problem is immediately evident. She cannot have children. That alone is hard. There's this incredible experience of parenting that she desires and cannot have. And on top of that, you know, being unable to have children, it carries this heavy social burden and stigma as well. If Hannah, if Hannah went to church here with us at Southside, you know what question she would dread every Sunday, right? Hey, Hannah, when are you and Elkanah going to get around to having some kids? Panina has what, five now? Remember, you're getting up there in age. Don't have forever, Hannah. What does Hannah do, you know? How could she reply? Force a smile, laugh, you know, say, oh, one of these days, and then rush to get home so nobody sees the tears welling up in her eyes. You know, may God protect us from surface-level judgments based on what we see that lead to hurtful questions and comments. What you see, it's not always what you get. And this goes doubly for Hannah. In the ancient Near East, a woman's life revolved around her ability to have children. She could not own property. She could not inherit land. Her only hope was to bear a son who could one day do those things and take care of her. That was the system. And that's why there are so many directives in the Old Testament about taking care of widows. Because in this society, they were so very vulnerable. So when people look at Hannah, what they see is a woman who cannot do the one thing she is supposed to do. And that outward struggle is perceived as an inner failure. She is worthless and without value. As you read chapter 1, you see the pain that she goes through. Despite her husband loving her, she is miserable. And her rival, Peninnah, mocks and derides her endlessly. And and this pain, it it all wells up and it's all expressed in verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Peninnah used to provoke Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. It's on one of these trips, one of these trips to the house of the Lord, which seems to be a somewhat permanent structure for the tabernacle at this point in time. It's on one of these trips that Hannah is kneeling outside the tabernacle. 
And the priest at the time, Eli, he sees her there, her lips moving, but no words coming out. And he assumes she's drunk. He chastises her. He tells her off. This is no place to be drunk. But what you see isn't always what you get. Hannah's not drunk. She is in the depths of her sorrow. She is pouring out her soul and making a vow to God. If you give me a son, I will devote him to the Lord all the days of his life. She explains this to Eli, and he blesses her. He says, the God of Israel grant your petition. And when she returns home, she has a child. And she names him Samuel. Have you, I'm sure you have, have you felt misunderstood ever? Ever felt misunderstood? You know, one of, my, one of my favorite bands of all time is Switchfoot. This is Switchfoot, okay? Although I should mention um, that uh, our children's minister, Aaron Leonard, is definitely a bigger fan um, than I am. Uh, but I really like Switchfoot. Their latest album that came out is called Interrobang. And it was written in 2021 as a response to the wild events of 2020. And it tackles different subjects like our need and dependence on one another, as well as how deeply divided we are at times. And no doubt you've experienced how easy it is to be divided over the past two years. Um, You know, how hard it is to really understand another person. Whether you've encountered it in the news or between friends on social media, arguments at family gatherings, even just division and friction within the walls of your own home. And one of the songs on this new album, it's called If I Were You. And it speaks to the challenge of understanding and of truly knowing another person. Here's some of the lyrics. It says, if I were you and you were me, would we still be doomed to disagree? Because you'd be me if I were you and you'd never see my point of view if I were you. And it posits this idea that, man, even if we could swap places, would we still just end up disagreeing all the same? It's like we're just bad at it, like we're bad at seeing one another. We're bad at hearing each other, bad at understanding. And the song, If I Were You, it wrestles with the idea of how our perceptions mislead us. We end up celebrating and seeking after things that don't matter. And we overlook the values and character traits that do. And Hannah knows this firsthand. And she has her own song about this. It's there in chapter 2, after she gives birth to Samuel. She prays a song. And this song, this song is, is kind of the key to First and Second Samuel, it's here at the beginning because it sets the stage for everything to come. Because this prayer, this song, it's about our own broken perceptions, our search to view others and the world correctly. And in this song, she identifies some truths to help us see more clearly. And, and this morning, I want us to look at three of these truths. The first is this, that God opposes the proud and he lifts up the humble. Uh, there in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, she says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Physical power, wealth and prosperity, and children. Those are the measures of success in the ancient world. And Hannah says that what you see is not what you get. Success is not what matters because God is with the weak and he lifts up the humble. 
You know, in Matthew 7, uh, 15 through 20, Jesus talks about fruit. He talks about fruit. Um, and, and he says, you will recognize people by their fruit. Beware of false prophets. You'll recognize them by their fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And I'll admit that most of my life, when I have considered what Jesus meant by fruit, I immediately thought about results. Like that is what has come to mind. Results, right? A church with fruit means a growing church. It has greater resources uh, to impact the world. It wields more influence. Now, I've recently been corrected in that. Because the the New Testament writers, they don't seem quite as concerned about those sort of results. Instead, fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruits of the Spirit. Fruit is it's the inner virtue cultivated by a life that abides with Jesus. And the church, it's not sustained by those measures of success. The church is not sustained by power or size or influence. The church is sustained by God. And Hannah warns us, don't see outer success as a sign of inner character. God opposes the proud and he lifts up the humble. And it's a truth that will be uh, shown time and time again throughout the book of Samuel. Her second message, uh, you can kind of see this theme drawn out in in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 2. She says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. And so the second truth is this, despite human evil, God is at work. You know, Hannah had suffered under Peninnah's cruelty, but but looking back, she could see God was at work. God was at work even in those hard moments. And there's great human evil at work right now in the world. There's war. There's war in Ukraine. People are invading. Missiles are exploding. Um... There's this video, I don't know if you saw, going around, a man sending his young daughter off to safety while he stayed behind to fight. And I, just, I could hardly watch it, you know. Um, just terrible. And Hannah, Hannah would tell us that, yes, even as this great evil takes place, God is at work. I don't mean it in the sense that because God is at work, we can be apathetic to what is happening. You know, God's got this, why should I bother? I don't think that's what God being at work means. Instead, I think maybe there's two ideas, two takeaways here. One, that because God is at work in spite of human evil, we will stand with him in that. We'll acknowledge evil is evil, suffering is suffering, and we'll lament it. And two, because God is at work during evil, we can respond differently. We can respond differently. You know, if there is only evil and hate and violence in the world, then it only makes sense to respond to it with the same, evil, hate, and violence. But if, if there is God, if, as Hannah says, he guards the feet of his faithful ones, and it's not by might that a man prevails, then we don't have to fear evil because we know our God 
is at work. And so in the face of terrible evil and hatred, we don't have to respond in kind. Our God is at work. And we know with certainty peace will one day reign forever. Death will be this long forgotten thing. And the weapons of war will be beaten into farm implements. And so until then, we practice the suffering sacrificial love for others. We pray for our friends and our enemies. We face down hatred with love. We weep alongside those hurting. And we model our certain hope even in dark times. I don't, I don't in any uh, way pretend to understand a lot about what's happening in Ukraine right now. Um, I'm, there's a lot of people in this room who, who get a lot better than I am, uh, do, certainly. But, but man, I know this. God is at work. Uh, there are some opportunities, I think, to be more involved. There was a prayer service Friday night at the Ukrainian Pentecostal Church and that's available on YouTube if you want to go check it out. Uh, you, you can uh, watch that and take part in that still. And I imagine that church is probably a good resource um, for other ways to be involved. Okay, so Hannah, in her prayer song, she has given us these two corrections to our perception. First, that what we consider success, it's not always success, right? God opposes the proud and he lifts up the humble. And the real sign of a person's character are the inner virtues evidenced by a life walked with Jesus rather than the outer measurements of numbers and power and influence. And then the second correction to our perception is that just because evil is at work does not mean that God is absent. On the contrary, he is always at work and he will make things right. Now for the third and uh, final corrective to our perception, we need some additional context. Chronologically, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, it comes after the book of Judges. If you're familiar with Judges, you know that there's this cycle in the book of Judges, okay? Israel sins, and they're punished by outside enemies. So then they cry out to God. God sends a judge who's like this heroic figure, and the judge delivers them. And then as long as the judge is alive, Israel is faithful to God. And then the judge dies, and the cycle starts over on the judge's death as Israel wanders away from God once again. But but it's not just a circle that repeats endlessly. It's actually a spiral, because each judge gets progressively more and more broken and immoral. And Israel's moral character continually deteriorates throughout the book. And by the end, you know, you have judges like Samson, who, man, he certainly does a number on Israel's enemies, but he is not a good person. We wouldn't look to him as an example of strong moral character. And if you want to see how bad it gets in Israel toward the end of Judges, you can go read Judges 19. Um, It's not the sort of story you would read on like a family worship Sunday up here. You know what I mean? Like there's this woman who's abused. She's cut into pieces. And those pieces are sent throughout Israel. It's it's messed up. You can't read it and not be like, what is happening here? And and the point is that by the end of Judges and the beginning of 1 Samuel, Israel is at this incredibly low moral point. Eli, who who is the priest there at the beginning of 1 Samuel, he doesn't really buck that trend either. His sons steal from the offerings made to God. They sleep with the women who serve there at the tabernacle. 
And it's likely, too, that Eli, his first interaction with Hannah, right, where he thinks she's drunk, this is probably an indicator that that sort of thing wasn't too uncommon in those days. People showing up drunk on the doorstep of God's house. And so the point is this. Things are bad for Israel. About as bad as they've ever been and on track to get worse. And there's this refrain all throughout Judges that really illustrates the sad state of Israel's character. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Speaks to the total lack of moral direction for Israel. And that, the fact that Israel is at such a terrible, terrible point, makes the final line of Hannah's song all the more surprising. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Despite the fact that there's never been a king, Hannah looks at the sad state of Israel and she anticipates a time when things will be different. God will provide a righteous king. And she's right. A king is coming who's going to change Israel's direction. Now, it's going to take a king or two to get there, but he is coming. He's on the way. And even though it looks so bad for Israel, Hannah has this hope, this confidence in God's goodness. And so she anticipates. She looks forward to the good she knows must be on its way, that God will provide a righteous king. And that message is true for us as well. There may be times where you look around the world at at your situation, at your friends or family, and feel things could not be worse. Could not be worse. Maybe you're beset by illness or conflict, a lost job, people who used to be friends that don't appreciate you anymore. And it seems like things have spiraled down to their lowest point. Hear God's word today. God has provided a righteous king. And it's not the David of of Samuel. He's just a picture of things to come. Jesus is our perfect, righteous king. And because of him, even the darkest night is mere seconds away from the dawn. There is always hope because of Jesus. And if you find yourself at your lowest point, a, a place of utter hopelessness, I'd like to encourage you to do two things. First, let someone know. We love you. We do. We we want to walk with you. There are wonderful people here who are good listeners. We're connected to wonderful professionals. We would like to help you and be with you throughout whatever it is you're experiencing. And the second is this. Hold on. Don't give up. The king is coming. Jesus is coming again. So there, there are three ways that Hannah helps us correct our faulty perception. You know, what you see isn't always what you get. She reminds us of that. And the rest of First and Second Samuel will continue to deal with this idea of how we misjudge and we perceive wrongly so often. You know, Saul is going to be chosen as king because he looks the part. David is almost overlooked because he's the youngest. Nobody wants to face off against Goliath because he looks unbeatable. And later on, when David's kingdom is secure and he has everything he could possibly need, it looks like he's got everything together 
it turns out to be his moment of greatest weakness and failure. The book of Samuel, it's full of moments that challenge how we typically perceive things. But today, as we close, I just want you to know why Hannah named her son Samuel. You know, Hannah, she was mistreated. She was misunderstood. No one heard her. No one saw her. But God did. He gave her a son. She named him Samuel. And his name means heard by God. That's what Samuel's name means. God hears you. He loves you. He knows you. Man, there is nothing better than knowing and being known by God. It changed the whole course of Hannah's life. It will change your life too. So this morning, if we can pray for you or otherwise serve you, please let us know. Let's stand and praise our God.